Anyway, it's good to be with you here this afternoon, and we're going to have uh, two, two sessions here. The first one, as you see on the screen, is the question of surviving persecution, and the second one is a look at the history of the uh, sexual revolution in the United States. And uh, these are, as you can tell, they aren't easy topics to discuss, um, but we pray for a spirit of wisdom as we discuss them together. I'm talking about persecution first because America is becoming an increasingly unauthoritarian society. We can see it happening in front of our eyes. Actions that are admittedly, that the administration admits are entirely unconstitutional, such as rent mor eviction moratoria, for which there is no basis in law, just happen around us. I'm not saying they're right or wrong, I'm just saying that they're unconstitutional. Whether it's lawful or unlawful does not mean it moral or immoral, there's a difference. So anyway, we can see um, authoritarianism and totalitarianism rising in America. And around the world as a missionary, we see that persecution is increasingly the norm of Christians. Persecution is not a rare one-off event. It's fast becoming the norm in our world today for anybody who bears the name of Christ. So uh, we're going to look um, today um, let's make sure this is on here. Okay. So um, can we go to the next slide or do we have another? Oh, it's gone. Okay, thank you. So uh, there's a basic passage in the writings of Paul, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4. And it says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to console those who are in, who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. Now, what is Paul saying there? He's essentially saying that the free church needs to learn lessons about God and his grace from the persecuted church. Those who are yet who, who have experienced affliction for the name of Christ have important spiritual lessons to pass to those who have yet to experience persecution because they bear the name of Christ. And so, um, whereas we tend to divide the world into Christian, Orthodox, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, etc., and even within Christianity we divide it into Catholic, Orthodox, Charismatic, and Protestant, for instance, and then Adventist, um, another way of looking at the world, the Christian world, is to look at the free, world, the free Christians and the persecuted Christians. And so um, we're going to be looking at some of the lessons we can pick up from persecuted Christians. Those are some excellent websites, and take a picture of that if you want. Persecution.com is from Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs were established by Pastor Richard Wurmbrand. I see a nodding head here. He was a pastor imprisoned by Ceausescu in the communist regime in the 70s in Romania. Uh, faced a lot of brutal treatment in prison. He was leapt out of prison and came to the States as a, as a political asylum seeker. And um, he established Voice of the Martyrs to speak about Christian martyrs all around the world today. Then Open Doors USA, an evangelical group that track the numbers of Christians we know of are being killed in the world on a weekly basis for their faith. We're not talking about Christians having road accidents in, in this city. We're talking about Christians who, who are being killed because they bear the name of Christ. Then you have the Ripple Effect series. It's a nice thing to take through your teenagers with. 
um, talks about the practical impact of persecution. And then the US State Department has the US Commission on International Religious Freedom, and they produce a report every year. You can download it for free. I'd encourage you to do it. It's kind of like a State of the Union address of every nation on Earth, what's happening in terms of religious liberty trends. And it's worth downloading that and encourage you to, if you're not involved in religious liberty, to become engaged with this. Um, be, be, understand what is happening in the world around. Be knowledgeable about what is happening. So um, we then have the structure of our presentation this afternoon. So there are eight sections. Now, I know as a preacher that people remember things in threes, don't they? You know, if you have a pastor that says, now there are two points, everybody thinks, ah, he couldn't think enough to get a third point. And if you say there are four points, then nobody remembers four points, because we all remember A, B, and C, then conclusions, somehow how our brains remember things. So say we're going to have eight points, or seven points, because that's the perfect number, then our conclusion, all right? So well, I could have boiled it down to three headings, but then they'd be too big and so forth, too broad. So that's the structure of our presentation this afternoon. We'll have time for Q&A uh, when we get to the end of this. So if you have questions, keep them in your mind, and we'll we can take your questions when, when I've finished. So first of all, why is there religious persecution today? And there's actually a variety of reasons why religious persecution takes place today. Uh, the first of which is authoritarian governments seek to control all religious thought and expression. A uh, classic example is North Korea. All of the communist countries, and there are still communist countries today, like Vietnam is still a communist nation. There are communist nations in our world today, in Southeast Asia, that's not the only one in Southeast Asia, that do not want Christians because Christians have a higher loyalty. Our ultimate loyalty is to Jesus, not to the premier or the prime minister or the secretary of the central party or whatever they may call themselves. And because Jesus taught that you must render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, which is you pay your taxes, etc., but then you must render unto God the things that are God's. And, but the way he words it is that you, you pay your earthly Jews, but above that is your heavenly Jews. And Jesus expects us to honor both uh, the civil authorities and God above, and he also expects the civil state to respect and honor the, civil, the human rights of the individual to worship God according to their conscience. And so uh, secular states such as the communists and totalitarian regimes do not want a Christian presence in particular because we have a higher loyalty to another king. I just, I mean, we may not see it this way today, but say the Gospel of Mark, uh, the opening verse of Mark, I don't have it with me, it says, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if I remember right. And when a Roman emperor was announced as coming to a city, it was announced as the Evangelion, the good news of Emperor Tiberius or Emperor Nero or Emperor Caligula. And the Roman emperors were also known as the Son of God. That was one of their official titles. So when Mark announces Jesus to the Church of Rome, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's essentially saying, you live in Rome under the Roman emperor, but I'm telling you there's another king that you owe, you owe prior allegiance to. And so the book of Mark is a direct challenge to the authority of Rome. And at the end of that chapter, of that book, Romans 15, there's a Roman centurion who has probably tattooed on his arm that SPQR that the Roman soldiers had, pro senatus populus quae Romanus, for Senate people in Rome. Uh, so he's killed for Rome. He's just killed Jesus in the name of Rome. And then he looks up at Jesus and he says, truly this man was the son of God because he was a servant of the earthly son of God, the emperor of Rome. So you see at the climax of that gospel that even a soldier who kills for the son of man in Rome can be converted and become a servant of the true son of God. So um, Jesus is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a threat to every authoritarian government. Secondly, 
There is often hostility towards non-traditional minority religious groups, such as in Sharia-compliant nations. Now, this is an important point because if the government, the government may sign up to the UN Declaration on Human Rights, for instance, or the International Convention um, that's been signed of Covenant and the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. We'll go through those in a minute. But if the government doesn't like you, it will turn a blind eye when militants will kill you. Okay, so the government doesn't have to do the persecuting itself. It can turn a blind eye and it can stand aside. And we know in America the police can sometimes stand aside and let things happen on the streets. These, do, these things do happen in many parts of the world. So the government may say officially we welcome all faiths here, but do nothing to stop militants killing Christians in that country. So there's the official, real, official voice and there's the reality on the ground. And we often see this in Sharia-compliant nations, countries where there's an Al-Qaeda franchise. Al-Qaeda is like McDonald's. It has multiple franchises around the world. Al-Qaeda is not an organization. It's an ideology. You have Al-Qaeda in the southern Philippines, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb in West Africa, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. ISIS was the, 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 the descendants of, ISIS, of, ISIS, of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and so forth. So you have persecution in Sharia and other compliant nations. You also have, a, around the world, a basic refusal to recognize human rights. We see this in almost every nation on Earth. Human rights are being um, infringed upon in our modern day and age. It doesn't matter whether the country calls itself Christian or communist or Muslim or Hindu. Human rights, even though countries sign up to them, there's a gulf between what countries say they do and what they actually do within them. We, you know, we aspire in America to an ever more perfect union and yet we still have a lot of troubles in America, don't we? And so we aspire to, to that which is good, but we know that sometimes that which is is not so good. And so there's often a, a discrepancy between what we say we are and what we actually are. So when you come to um, the Article 18 of the Declaration of Human Rights, it states there that everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes the freedom to change his or her religion or belief. And parallel to that, you have Article 18 of the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which states, everyone shall have the right of freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right shall include the freedom to have or to adopt a religion or belief of his or her choice and freedom, either individually or in community with others, and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. Now, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? So if you grow up in Egypt... They respect this right in the sense that you can change your religion from Muslim to Christian on your from um, Christian to Muslim on your government ID card, but you cannot change your religion from Christian from Muslim to Christian on your ID card. They don't allow this. What they will allow is you to go from Muslim to atheist. They'd rather say you could, you can become a Christian but call yourself an atheist on your ID card, but they don't want you to show that people are transitioning from Islam to Christianity. And so even though uh, over 150 countries have signed these conventions and these articles, in many, many countries there's a real discrepancy between practice and theory uh, within those countries. Uh, we go on to say in uh, that International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, no one shall be subject to coercion, which would impair his religion to have or to adopt a religion or belief of his choice. Very applicable to America today, actually. No one shall be subject to coercion particularly when it comes to a deeply held private um, religious belief. So um, this is why persecution is happening today. There's a, a variety of reasons for it. When we come to the current reality of persecution of Christians, um, here's a map of Iraq, and um, we have a young lady sitting in the back there. Maybe you want to wave your hands for us, sister? 
No, no, no. That's you, Sarah. Yeah, do you want to stand up for us? Uh, she wasn't expecting this. All right, okay. So, why do I ask her to stand? Because um, she's signed up to launch with us out to where you see on the screen there. And in 2013, 14, 2014, ISIS was conquering their way across northern Iraq. And uh, they conquered their way from Syria to Shinjar. They hit the, the Yazidis around here. They came to Mosul, which is ancient Nineveh. And then um, they came to the borders of Kurdistan. This is Kurdistan here. And Kurdistan is inhabited by the Kurds, who are a different ethnic group to the Arabs and the, and the Syrians and the Turks and the Iranians who surround them on their borders. And ISIS, when they came to Mosul, they painted that symbol on the Christians' doors, this symbol here. It's uh, Arabic. It stands for N, right? the N for Nazarene. And they gave the Christians, because if they put that on your door, you're a worshiper of the Nazarene. They said, you have 48 hours to leave, convert, or die. So what would you do? Everybody left. I mean, everybody. And you left with what you could carry. And on the way out of Mosul, ISIS basically shook you down for anything of value. So tens of thousands of Christians fled in summer 2014 and into 2015 out of Mosul. And they fled to Erbil, which is here. It's about 50 miles it's like half an hour on the road because it's just straight desert. And there was no military forces between uh, ISIS in, in Mosul and Kurdistan at the time. The Iraqi army just fled. There's a reason why the Iraqi army fled. The Iraqi army is mostly Shia. They're from the south of Iraq. And they see no reason to defend Sunni Iraqis in the north against ISIS, which was a Sunni force. So that's where their religious tensions within Islam took over. And the Iraqi army just pulled out and left the civilian population to the depredations of ISIS. Well, the Christians left, and I was out there, and you can see there some of the living conditions. These are people who've lost everything because they bear the name of Christ. You meet people there who are Nestorians. You read about Nestorians in the history books from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. They're Nestorians out there, Maronites, Church of Mary, Eastern Catholics, a few Protestants, but they're mostly branches of Catholicism and some ancient sects like Nestorians. They lost everything because they bear the name of Christ. I mean, literally everything. They lost their families. Their daughters were put into um, jihadi brothels. Their husbands were executed if they're of military age. And they came out with the clothes that they stood on. Women were giving birth in the streets. It was 50 Celsius. That's like 130 Fahrenheit. The streets were soft. The tarmac was soft. And the Christians were living in, in, um, under trees, in parks, um, in churches, in building lots, and building um, sites, um, in um, malls. They were packed. And you go into a church like this at the time, and you have one family or two families to every pew. And that's where they were living. And that's what happened to them out there. They were not persecuted because they were Maronite or Nestorian or Orthodox. They were being killed because they bore the name of Christ. And I came across a lady there. I could tell you many stories. I won't. But there was one lady. She was sitting there. And beside her, she had a statue of the Virgin Mary. That's all she had, about this big. But I didn't think it was a good time to talk to her about the second commandment. Um, there's a time and a place for everything. And she told me her story, and it was heartbreaking. And she said at the end, she said, well, they can take my husband, they can take my family, they can take my children, they'll take my house, they'll take my job, they take my car, they take my money, but they can't take my faith. And that statue of Mary was the symbol of her Christian faith. Now, we may dispute the theology, but we would have been in no better position she was being killed and her family being killed because she bore the name of Christ. 
however imperfect that theology might be. This was the reality of northern Iraq. And when you ask, did the Christians go back to Mosul after it was liberated in 2019 when ISIS were kind of bombed into smithereens? The answer is mostly no. And the reason for that is if you ask the Christians, why don't you go back? And they said, well, today it's ISIS, tomorrow it's al-Nusra, tomorrow, the day after that it's al-Qaeda, the day after that it's Hezbollah, the day after that it's ISIS, it never ends. The, 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 the terror keeps coming in waves, so we're not going back. Now, this lady here was uh, in West Africa. She had a dream of Jesus. He appealed to her to follow these two young girls. The next morning she got up and she went to the front door and there were those two young girls. It was a Sabbath morning. She followed them and went to an Adventist church, the only Adventist church in the capital of that country. And when she was there, she heard the gospel and gave her life to Jesus. She goes home and tells her devout Muslim parents who are horrified and they lock her in her room. This was about two, two and a half years ago. And they hired someone to beat her up, to give up her faith, and she wouldn't. They tied her to the bed and electrocuted her. She wouldn't give up her faith. Amen. They hired someone to come and slice her body open with razor blades, and you see some of the scars going down her legs there. That wouldn't make her give up her faith. Eventually the father said, well, if I kill you for getting pregnant as an adulteress, that brings less shame on the family than if I kill you as an honor killing for becoming a Christian. So they hired a shaman, not a Muslim, to come and uh, impregnate her forcibly, which she did. And she turned to Jesus in despair, and Jesus appeared to her and told her to go to a certain city where he found an Adventist Frontiers missionary who herself was, is a former Muslim and knows what it's like to go through this. And so that lady is still in lockdown in a house in somewhere in that country. She's given birth to a child that's been raised by the local church who are all former Muslims, and she's in permanent lockdown with no hope of ever leaving lockdown because her tribe wants her blood. So we complain about COVID lockdowns. It's nothing compared with what Christians are going through around the world today. So the current reality of Christians today is with the Christians experience verbal harassment, hostile feelings, um, beatings, physical torture, uh, lawful and unlawful imprisonment, isolation, the systemic rape of women in some parts of the world, severe social, economic and judicial punishments, uh, slavery, uh, you get places like Pakistan where Christians are in indentured labor for generations. They can't get out of that. They will never get out of it um, because the, the, the local community wants to eliminate the Christian faith. Discrimination in education and employment and even death, those are the reality of persecuted Christians around our world on a daily basis today. So it's a kind of sobering topic, isn't it? And when you serve as a missionary, you see this all the time. You realize that slavery is alive and well in our world today. Slavery did not end with the end of the American Civil War. There are more slaves today than in the 1860s. They're predominantly based in places like India, Pakistan, China, and West Africa. But slavery is alive and well, and many people are caught up as Christians in slavery because they are Christians. So who is our enemy? Well, our enemy is not the people you see in front of you. And perhaps the hardest teaching of Jesus is that you love your enemy. That's, I think, is the hardest teaching. It's maybe the essence of the gospel. And you could say the gospel can be expressed in many ways. Like that you can say the gospel is three words. Um, thank you. No. Sorry. Thank you, please. I'm sorry for my sins. I'm a broken person. Thank you for dying for me on Calvary in my place. Please fill me with your spirit and lead me today. That's the essence of the gospel. Sorry. Thank you. Please. That's not hard to remember, is it? Well, um, Another way of looking at the gospel is to love your enemies. If you would wish to be as your father in heaven, then you love your enemies. 
That means you bless those who persecute you and you pray for those who despitefully use you. And so we need to remember that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but they are spiritual. Our enemy is described in the New Testament in, by these titles here. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the prince of this world, the god of this world, prince of demons, the hinderer, the accuser, the liar and father of lies, angel of light, the tempter, a roaring lion, and a murderer. And Jesus came not so much to save you, but the Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And if you've never encountered evil, I say, well, praise the Lord, it will come and touch you sometime in life. You know, a cancer diagnosis, a marital breakdown, repossession, a dead child, whatever the case may be, evil will touch you at some point in your life. And we have to understand how do we respond to the reality of evil in our lives. Well, evil ultimately comes from Satan. But as the Apostle Paul goes on to say at the end of a discussion on the resurrection, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not on our own in the midst of a persecuted world and a persecuting world. So how does Satan attack the church? Well, he attacks it internally and actually externally. Um, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about externally. I won't focus so much on the internal attacks on the church. But um, the first way he attacks the church, we see this in the New Testament and throughout history, is through civic rulers. Satan will attack the church through Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a good example of, of that. And uh... All right, so our battery's dead. <clears throat> All right, so I'll just switch to the main microphone here. Thank you. So he attacked through um, civic rulers like Pontius Pilate and Herod Agrippa. He also attacks through communist rulers, Ceausescu, Gorbachev, well, not so much Gorbachev, but the Soviet Politburo. Um, socialist rulers killed about 110 million people in the last century with its socialist ideology. Many of those were professing Christians. Uh, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, uh, the Vietnamese during the civil war there in Vietnam. Um, the, the, uh, Satan attacks the church through civic rulers. If he can't get you through the laws of the land, he'll get you through the religious leaders. And if you look at Adventist.org, that's the World Church's website to the GC, we have statements on every topic under the sun, but we don't have a, stop, a topic on Islam. You'll notice that we have a topic on, on Catholicism, on our relationship with other Protestant churches, on other religions, on oh, I don't know, environmental degradation, income inequality, female genital mutilation, all kinds of topics, but we do not have a statement on Islam. And there's a reason for that. Because if we doubt the prophethood of Muhammad or question the inspiration of the Quran in Washington, next Sabbath, Adventists will pay a high price in some other parts of the world. We recognize that. And so if Satan can't attack through civic rulers, he'll attack through religious leaders. He also attacks through businesses and corporations and in the time of Paul, in, in um, Ephesus, you had the silversmiths who lost their business, and they attacked the apostles, and they dragged um, some of their representatives into the amphitheater then. They cried, great is thine of the Ephesians. You remember there in the book of Acts. And so um, when the, the owners of the slave girl saw that Paul had cast out the spirit again that was inhabiting her, they served up the mob to attack Paul. Do you remember that in Acts 16? Well, today we have corporations pushing what you might call a woke agenda in America, who are pushing uh, um, post-biblical understandings of morality, marriage, and sexuality. And if you don't toe the knee and join in the celebrations, then you will be a target as well. We also see that Satan attacks the church through mobs. If Satan cannot attack the church through civic rulers, religious leaders, businesses and corporations, then he attacks through mobs. And mobs are a convenient way for the social elites to deal with a problem, and then they can wash their hands and say, oh, how terrible that was. 
But if they can't get you through the laws of the land, then the police will stand by and let the mob do its dirty work. And oftentimes the mob is not motivated by religious fervor, it's motivated by greed. Because the Christians are often the middle class in many countries around the world. They're the shop owners, they're the engineers, they're the dentists, they're the uh, architects. And there's often jealousy at play. And so the Christians are often targeted by the mob, their businesses destroyed, their homes burnt to the ground, their possessions stolen, and their families destroyed one way or the other. And finally, you have family pressure. This started just outside the Garden of Eden when Cain killed Abel. Jesus experienced division in his family, where his mother and his brothers and sister thought that he was crazy in Mark 3 and wanted to come and take him home because they said, you know, something's wrong with him. You know, you're ashamed of the family. You better, let's go and lock you up for a while here. And Jesus says, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers and who are my sisters at the end of that chapter? And so Satan attacks through family pressures. This is a major issue in Islam. And it's also in Hinduism to a certain extent. When you become a Christian, you often lose everything in life. Your family turn their back on you. They disown you. They disinherit you. Uh, You lose access to marital opportunities, to economic opportunities, to educational opportunities. Uh, You become a social leper in many countries when you become a Christian. And that often is is the the meeting point for that pressure is through the family itself. Satan also attacks the church through a bunch of other ways. He isolates Christians through arrest, expulsion, or enforced dispersion. He sows conflict among Christians. He's very effective at that. There are attacks from local dominant faith leaders and faith groups or mobs. He attacks through religious nationalism. Now, this is increasing around the world today. So, for instance, uh, in Greece, the dominant church is the Greek Orthodox Church. To be Greek means that you're Orthodox. To be Orthodox means that you're Greek. If you leave the Orthodox Church and become an Adventist, you've also lost your national identity because religion and nationalism have been fused. In Russia, it's Russian Orthodox. In Bulgaria, it's Bulgarian Orthodox. In Saudi Arabia, it's Islam. So your national identity is fused with your religious identity. And so to turn your back on your faith means to turn your back on your entire culture. That's how it's portrayed, and this is the impact of, of turning to Jesus. Um, Satan attacks the church through secular humanism, which in its tolerance attacks Christianity more than anything else. Um, it attack, he attacks the church through anti-conversion laws. If you convert, we'll kill you. Uh, that's particularly in the Sharia. And also through strict controls over approved worship centers. So, for instance, in Egypt, I used to be the secretary treasurer of the Middle East Union. You cannot build a church or even buy land to build a church unless the Muslims on all four sides agree to that land purchase. Well, guess what happens? Nobody ever agrees to that building being used as a church. And if you don't keep the building up, the government will take it from you because it's falling into disrepair. Hence, a lot of the budget of the Egypt fields is spent on empty buildings the length and breadth of Egypt because if we lose that building, we'll never have a church there again. So strict controls over approved worship centers, anti-blasphemy laws, which are generally enforced by mobs rather than by the local judiciary, economic discrimination against Christians, martyrdom, abductions and fall. And uh, neutralizing the Christian witness through closing down all churches, cutting off AWR, cutting off Christian websites, banning the presence of churches, the sale of Bibles, uh, taking children from their parents and re-educating them in the dominant ideology or religion of the country. This is happening today as we speak. It doesn't make the news. But if, for instance, you keep a close eye on the news, for instance, Nigeria, if you follow Nigeria, you'll realize that there is... Um, an ongoing jihad against Christians in southern and central Nigeria from the Muslims of the north, mostly Fulani. 
and that the media portrays it as a clash between um, pastoralists and nomadic people. So the Christians are settled in villages and the Muslims have their cattle and they move around. So the media portrays it as a, as a struggle between economic ways of life. But in reality, it's a jihad being waged by the Fulani against the Christians. And on your average weekend, 50, 100, 200 Nigerian Christians will be hacked to death in their huts. Their huts, their whole villages burnt to the ground. And this barely makes the news. And it's happening every single week. And it doesn't make the news. It doesn't break through the froth, the meaningless froth that clutters up Fox, CNN, and all the rest of the stuff here in America. This is happening. And it's happening to our brothers and sisters in Africa, in parts of Asia, in parts of Latin America as well. Christians are under attack. So, um, towards the theology of persecution. Well, let's look at what Jesus said about it. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the last of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, notice this, that in all the Beatitudes, the only mention of Jesus is in the Beatitude on Persecution. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called children of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who, thought, um, uh, who, who grieve, for they should become blessed. Okay? But the only mention of Jesus is in this Beatitude on Persecution. Now, if you open your Bibles, and I invite you, if you have a Bible there, open it up right now. And... So we see in the last beatitude, Jesus appears now in the context of persecution, which might tell you that, you know, when, when Jesus stood in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus is present in the midst of persecution in the beatitudes. But if you look in your Bibles, after verse 12, what do you then have in your Bibles? What comes next? The soul to the earth and light to the world, yes. And do, do most of you have like a paragraph division there in your Bibles? Yes, and does it say like salt of the earth or light of the world? Okay, so 99.9999% of people will read the Beatitudes and they'll stop at verse 12. But that's not how Jesus did it. He talked about persecution and then he carried on speaking. The very next word he says, but you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. That is, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world when the darkness of persecution is gathering. That is when you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's the context for that little paragraph there. When we separate the beatitude about persecution from being the light of the world and the salt of the earth or vice versa, we're missing the point of Jesus saying. He's not just saying in good times you're the light of the world, light of the earth, salt of the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world, sorry. Um, He's talking about that in the context of being persecuted for his name's sake. So if I light a candle right now when the sun is shining, You'll see the candle is there, but your eyes won't be drawn to it because there's light everywhere. But if I leave that candle on and darkness comes, now it's midnight and you walk into this sanctuary and there's no lights on, everybody's eyes will see that candle. That candle has not changed. But because the gloom and the darkness of persecution has settled around it, that same Christian life shines ever more brightly. The contrast is greater. So we are the light of the world, particularly in the context of being persecuted for the name of Christ. The governments governments will know that you are a Christian. They're not going to argue about, you know, are you 
pre-anti-malarian or pre-millennial or post-millennial? Are they going to be post-lapsarian, anti-lapsarian? They're not going to ask those kind of questions. They know you're a Christian, and therefore you're a threat. So I used to live in Azerbaijan, and the KGB were all around. I had a KGB driver, KGB translator. My house, I'm pretty sure, was bugged. I know my phone was. And so I knew that everything I said and did, you know, to quote that song, every move you make, every breath you take, I'll be watching you. Yeah, a big brother on steroids. Well, um, that may sound bad, but I was one of two Americans or two Westerners in that entire republic at the time. There was a war with a neighboring country going on, and life wasn't easy there, but... Um, everybody in the community knew that the KGB were watching us, which meant that we had 24-7 security from the Russians because nobody's going to touch us. And uh, I said, well, if you're going to read my emails, I'll give you something to read. So I send my mum Steps to Christ in England, a chapter every Friday. On, this was back in the day of CompuServe. And if you remember CompuServe? So if you want to read my emails, there's some poor KGB officer, Francie, trying to translate my emails to make sure it's not seditious. And I'll give you a chapter a week of Desire of Ages or the Sabbath School lesson. And you want to read something? I'll give you something to read. Well, that's kind of humorous, isn't it? Uh, you know, you turn the tables on people. But, you know, there were stories like in Cuba a few years ago when some professors from Andrews took a bunch of students down to preach. And uh, the government assigned a heavy police presence to watch those meetings so that nothing dangerous happened. And many of those police officers were baptized. So you never know, okay? Even the centurion who crucified Jesus was converted at the cross. The jailer of Philippi was the day after the earthquake and so forth. So God can work through those who inflict the most pain directly on his people. So um, Jesus goes on to say, Everyone therefore who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And as, the, as totalitarianism, because that's what it is, rises in America, and it's not Republican or Democrat, it's just Washington is now post-Christian. doesn't matter who's in power, really. The powers that be have no place for Christ. So the persecution is going to rise in our country. It will come in different guises. They will claim that homeschooling is racism. They'll claim that Christianity is white supremacy. They'll claim that whatever the case may be, they'll smear Christians whatever way they can, in order to eliminate the Christian faith in our nation. And it is going to be happening. And if you don't believe it's happening, you haven't sat on a school board recently and struggled with the legal issues that schools are now dealing with. It's right up and close personal, right? It's happening right now as we speak. If the world hates you, said Jesus, beware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, in the world, you face success and economic well-being. No. In the world, you face persecution, says Jesus. But take courage. I have conquered the world. In John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Now, we read that last phrase, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it, as if that's talking about Jesus, the light of the world. That's how he's described in the prologue of John's gospel there. But... The text says the light shines as a present continuous, which means the light is shining. It continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness does not overwhelm it. So Jesus is the light of the world, but we are also the light of the world. This verse tells us there's always going to be a struggle between light and dark, between good and evil. And in that struggle, the darkness will always try to overwhelm the good, but the good will always survive. So the light is shining in the darkness in Mentone, and the darkness of our world will not overcome the light that comes from the Mentone congregation. 
That's the promise of Jesus. Not just talking about John. John isn't just talking about Jesus there. Uh, the tenses indicate he's talking about us today as well. So we might say from the scriptures that character is not formed in times of crisis. It's revealed for what it already is. You know what somebody's character really is like when they get a flat tire and it's raining outside on the interstate. That's when you discover what their character is really like. Okay? And so character, uh, every decision today, every decision that you and I make actually shapes our character. There's no neutral day when it comes to spiritual growth and character development for, for eternity. Every day and every decision we make is shaping our character for what's going to come tomorrow. So you cannot simply say, I'm like, kind of like I'm, I'm a Christian on injured reserve. And I'm going to get into the game on the last play of the fourth quarter. That's not how it works, okay? There's no injured reserve in, in the gospel army. We are Christians on active service from the moment we are born again and baptized into the kingdom of God. And you can't just sit on your haunches and say, let somebody else carry forward the fight and I'll be strong when it comes my way. Because when it comes your way, you won't have any character to resist what is coming your way. So we prepare for persecution tomorrow for the sake of Jesus. It's always important to remember we're being persecuted before because we bear the name of Christ. That's the reason why we're persecuted, by seeking God's grace to fully live the teachings of Jesus today. The teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus. We obey the teachings of Jesus as his disciples. Not, I like, I've got a book at home called Four Adventist Views of Salvation. It's got four different famous writers, okay? I forget who they are now. And um, Jack Blanco is in there, I think, and one of the Maxwells is in there. No, we follow Jesus, and we're loyal to his teachings as the Holy Spirit guides us into understanding those. We don't say, I'm loyal to this pastor or that pastor. No, we are loyal to Jesus because only he can give us eternal life. So how do we respond to those who are experiencing persecution? We're on number five out of seven here. This is the... Uh, we'll come back in a second. How do we respond to those experiencing persecution? A number of ways. One is we don't ignore those who are suffering for the name of Christ. Don't ignore them. Don't pretend it's not happening. Don't see something on the news and flip over to something on the sports channel. If somebody comes to your church and you have an incredible church here, you may have somebody kind of come cautiously into your church who sits on the back pew and when you say, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Kazakhstan. Then you kind of, oh, that's nice. Well, Invite them to your home and say, tell me your story. And you will hear a story of courage and of conscience and of conviction and of people who maybe lost everything because they bore the name of Christ. And we honor them and we respect them by giving them the time and the space to tell their story. So slow down and listen to the stories, probably within your own congregation, of people who've endured everything and have lost almost everything for the name of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, remember those who are in prison or those who are as though you were in prison with them. Those who are being tortured, though yourselves are being tortured, Hebrews 13, 3. Um, I'd like to encourage you in this area. Voice of the Martyrs. Um, my grandma used to give to them when I was a small boy. I used to see the newsletters on her desk. She, my grandfather was a pastor in Oxford in England. And she would write a check every month to Voice of the Martyrs. And if there's one organization I would encourage you to think about giving to, it's Voice of the Martyrs. Because they, send, they make contact with prisoners of conscience of all Christian denominations. They support the families of prisoners of conscience. And those families, you know, the pastor can be just disappeared off the streets. And he may not appear for 10 or 15 years. And what happens to the family in the interim? And oftentimes you become a leper and, and no, nobody else wants to help you. So you, you reduce to 
poverty almost overnight. So Voice of the Martyrs, uh, something great for your young people to do is they have um, a letter, a card writing campaign. And uh, you can write to them cards, and then your young people can write out messages of encouragement to prisoners of conference, dear friend, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, and they will mail them or deliver them to prisoners of conscience around the 1040 mission window for you. It's an incredible encouragement. And Christians who come out of prison cells often say that what kept them going was the knowledge that somebody out there knew about them and was praying for them. So don't ignore those who are suffering for the sake of Jesus. Secondly, slow down and recognize somebody's suffering. Uh, you see the quote there from Job chapter 2. Maybe the most helpful thing that Job did, uh, his friends did, was they, they spoke from chapters 3 to, what, 37 or so. But the most helpful thing they do was sit in silence for seven days. <laughs> you know? That was the best thing they did. And, you know, the lady I met in Iraq who lost her kids to, to ISIS, to put them in into girls in, in a brothel, she sat in silence. And what was I to say when I heard that story? I sat in silence. Because evil, there is a depth to evil that is so deep that words cannot express it. And words cannot reflect it. Word, you cannot say anything to evil. All you can do is sit quietly and hold somebody's hand. And silently pray that Jesus come soon. And so slow down and recognize somebody's suffering. Now, you know, if somebody says in church, I have cancer, we slow down and we, we show them sympathy and empathy and compassion. But oftentimes, there are people in our congregations who've gone through this kind of suffering, and they, they've never had a chance to tell their story. So give a chance for your congregational members to tell their story, and realize that probably within this congregation there, there are some true heroes of faith who've suffered everything for Jesus Christ. Give them the time and the space, and affirm their experience, affirm the validity of their experience by listening respectfully and giving them a hug. This happens all too often. I had a church once, and one man stood up and he said, yeah, he said, um, uh, when I was raised, my father was imprisoned by the Red Army in the Czech Republic, and so we fled. My mum and I, we fled across the border into, into um, West Germany, I think it was, to escape the Red Army. I never saw my father again. The next lady who stood up, because we were doing like an international day, and you have, we had this thing where everybody said, what's my name, where did I come from, how did I come to this church, how did I become a Christian, something like that, and what can you pray for for me? So five simple questions. Next lady stands up and she says, well, she says, my father was Russian, we were stationed in the Czech Republic, he was in the Red Army in military intelligence imprisoning Christians. And there was like this shock in the church, like, maybe your father killed my father. And nobody knew about this until we were intentional about listening to each other's stories. So try and find a way in this church of listening to each other's stories. Um, at potluck, speak with someone you don't know. Maybe have somebody once a week come up and answer those five questions. Who am I? Where do I come from? How did I become a Christian? How did I get to this church? And how can you pray for me? It's a great way to know somebody and to hear some pretty profound stories. Speak up on behalf of the voiceless. Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the rights of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked, etc. Proverbs, Psalms and Proverbs. We're not called to be a comfortable middle-class church. We're called to be Jesus' ambassadors in this community. And that means we do speak up on injustice, and we do speak up for those who have no voice. I'm not, I'm not a social justice warrior, because biblical justice is different to social justice, but even when you say that, that's not an excuse to not stand up for justice. Christians must be known for people who stand up for what is right, though the heavens fall. 
And so we are to speak up on behalf of the voiceless. As an example, in my life, I was in Cyprus, the sector treasurer of the Middle East Union, and this girl comes into church who's got like um, strangle marks around her neck. And uh, we said, where are you from? Well, from Armenia. And what are you doing here? Well, I, I answered a job advert to be a waitress in Cyprus. Ah, okay. Those of you who know how the world operates know that wasn't a job advert to be a waitress. She was now being broken in in order to be sold on traffics to a brothel in Europe. And she came to church and she said, the mafia have me and I'm scared. So we discussed it among ourselves and we raised the money among ourselves. We bought her a one-way ticket to a home country and we got the police and we said, we want you to provide a police escort from the brothel to the airport. And then we told her the next Sabbath, we'll be outside your door at a certain time. And we were there in the movies, like with a baseball cap and sunglasses, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be recognized by the mafia. And we put her in the car and we drove to the airport with a police escort. And then she got to check and we said, give us your phone. And we tore up the SIM card so nobody can track it back to us and put her on a plane back to her family. And if my daughter were caught up in that situation, I'd ask that you do the same for her. We are to speak up for those who are being persecuted and get involved if necessary. Offer practical support and comfort. We see that in 1 Corinthians 12. So there's a variety of ways that we can respond to those who are experiencing persecution. But I want to talk for a few minutes as time is moving on about Adventists and the coming storm, because it is coming. And this is kind of a strange way of wording it, because for many Christians, the storm is already here. When we say Adventists and the coming storm, we were oblivious to the fact that Adventists for generations have been living under a storm in many parts of the world. So this is a very American-centric way of looking at this kind of question. I recognize that. Many Adventists will say Adventists and the current storm, not just Adventists and the coming storm. So um, as a general rule in Western Adventism, um, we tend to focus on, um, S on, on timelines. Uh, we, we dispute about Jacob's time of trouble, the greater time of trouble, the lesser time of trouble, when does the time of probation end, what is the seal of God, what is the Sabbath, what is the mark of the beast, etc., etc., etc. We focus on timelines. And even though the Bible talks about those things, the more important thing is, are you ready for it? That's the more important question. Adventist eschatology tells us that in the end times, God's faithful people will not be a triumphant, glorious, and well-received global movement. We will not have our institutions. We will not have our visible churches. We'll be an underground militant movement. Underground house churches. That's where it's going to go ultimately. And if it's not going to go to house churches, it's going to go to house families who choose to worship God according to their conscience. We will be a church militant under severe economic sanction, stripped of our institutions, our tax-free exemptions, grants of land, access to banking, legal, financial, and visa instruments, and ultimately facing the death penalty for the mark of the beast. So everything we have today, we, we praise God for the blessings we have today, it's all going to go. What matters is souls, not buildings. And what matters is us being ready for that time. And if you don't know the brother or sister to the left or the right of you, get to know them because when the church building is gone and the conference is gone and the division is gone and the union is gone and Loma Linda is gone and uh, what's left of your Christian experience of the body of Christ, it is the brother and sister to your right or your left who meets with you in the park for 30 seconds of prayer so the police can't see you. So what happens in places like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. So get to know your brothers and sisters. Pray with them and pray for them. Do you know what you can be praying for your brothers for? 
I mean, some people, they'll tell you all their problems. I understand that. But most of us say, I'm fine, thank you. I've just had a cancer diagnosis. Get to know your brothers and your sisters. Pray for the people in front of you and behind you in the pews. Because when everything else is gone, it's your brother or sister who lives three streets down from you that will be the visible expression of the body of Christ. And nothing else. So love your brother and love your sister today so that you will truly rely on them. When I was in Tajikistan, the KGB one, not the KGB, Al-Qaeda, no, Al-Qaeda, who was it? Um, I went in Afghanistan, the Taliban. Yeah, they kind of blur after a while. It wasn't my mother-in-law, she was never in that country, but um, that's a joke, by the way, yeah. So um, uh, we, we had some fun and games with the Taliban, which we won't go into today, but um, involved a lot of things. And uh, they gave me um, half an hour to leave my home where they were going to kill me. And I managed to pack and get out of my house in about 15 minutes. You know, it was quick. So um, where did I stay? Well, I couldn't go to the airport because the, um, the airport, has a, there was a civil war going on between communists and mujahideen, and there was fighting. I couldn't go to the airport. So... An elderly brother in the church took me into his one-room apartment, a Soviet apartment out there in the city of Dushanbe. I'd never met him before, but I was his brother in Christ. And he sheltered me for about three months, that brave old man. He's dead now, but he sheltered me, and he went out and he bought a few extra herbs and, and um, bread. We used to eat round bread. It's called lepioshki out there. And we, we survived on that for about three months, and the fighting subsided at the airport, and I could get out of the country. Yeah, he stood by me in my hour of need, and I'm truly grateful to that brother. And one day, you're going to need a brother or a sister to stand by you. So start today by standing by your brothers and sisters. If somebody in your church here can't pay rent, help them with the rent. If they can't pay the kids' fees, help them with the kids' fees. Put your money where your mouth is. And put your heart where your mouth is and look out for your brothers and sisters because one day that's all you're going to have. Adventist leaders today are called to strike a heroic balance between A, seeking to preserve the past, including our schools, etc., which we know will one day be swept away, and secondly, between equipping and guiding the members for um, surviving the coming storm. Now you say, where do most of our conference leaders spend their time? They spend it on A rather than B. Why? Because if a conference president allows a major school to close during their four or five years in office, they're going to get voted out at the next constituency session. That's the brute reality. All the alumni will get involved. Bad, bad conference president. Is this sounding funny? Bad conference president because he let that school close. Well, our Adventist leaders, all of us, pastors, Bible teachers, Sabbath school teachers, church elders, deacons, I believe we're called to prepare people for the coming storm above everything else. Because when the coming storm hits us, it doesn't matter how beautiful your building is or what your balance sheet looks like. That is really irrelevant. Two of the most common statements on persecution are, number one, persecution will never happen here. Number two, we never thought that persecution would happen here. Two of the most commonly heard statements around the world on persecution. It will never happen here. Redlands? Nah, it'll never happen in Redlands, will it? Yes, yeah. I think, is it, is it Pastor John MacArthur, that famous pastor down in Los Angeles? He's had endless legal battles over the last year and a half. Pastors in Ontario and Alberta have been imprisoned. Uh, one of them was imprisoned for having church in his house with his family. But he says he told them this is church rather than just a family gathering. He was hauled out of his home and imprisoned in Alberta just a few weeks ago. Don't think this is not happening in the West. 
It is happening. So, intellectually, we know we're going to experience persecution. Is that true? Yes. Spiritually, are we ready for that persecution? Are we right with God? Do we have other gods in our life that, are, that will so compromise our call that, that when the persecution comes, we'll bend and go along with it? You know, somebody says, I'd love to be a missionary, but I have a, um, I have a sports car collection, and I couldn't leave that behind. I'd love to be a missionary, but I love NASCAR. I couldn't survive without my dose of NASCAR. Well, I'm not, NASCAR is fine, but when you can't serve God fully because of NASCAR, then that's become a God in your life. And you shall have no other gods before me. So I want to invite you to do a self-audit. What in your life would hold you back, would cause you to give up your faith if it meant losing it? And a good strategy is to get rid of it now. Give it away, donate it, so it no longer has that hold over you. And thirdly, pastorally, we have a responsibility to prepare our families and our flocks for when we are gone. Does that make sense? Are you preparing your family for when you're gone? We make our wills, we have living wills, we have trusts, we have uh, charitable gift annuities, all that kind of stuff, but spiritually, are you preparing your family for when you may not be here? Am I preparing my family? Is your pastor preparing his family? Are the elders preparing the congregation for when there's no visible leadership left anymore? Because the leaders are generally the first to be taken away. So these are questions we must all ask for ourselves. We're coming to the end here. So Adventists in the Coming Storm, sometimes you need to build yourself a cell. I'm taking this from a book from called Surviving the Storm by Open Doors USA. It's out of print, but it was an excellent book. They talked about six ways to, to get through persecution. One was sometimes you need to build yourself a cell. What they mean by that is this. Um, God keeps secrets. And if you break down under interrogation, God's not going to put it on Facebook. And when you confess, he'll forgive you as if it never happened. And God keeps secrets like nobody else. I was interrogated a couple of times by the KGB. It was held in Uzbekistan and in Armenia. It wasn't pleasant. The KGB don't beat you up. They, they have like this psychological way of asking you questions. Like they say, what was your mother's name? Vivian Vine. Ten minutes later, what was your mother's name? Vivian Vine. Three hours later, now what did you say your mother's name was? Well, it wasn't Vivian Vine. By the end of the day, um, I think Jesus is with you. You need to feel comfortable with that. And to feel comfortable in your prayer life that you're not going to go crazy in solitary confinement. You will survive because you have a companion there who will never leave you nor forsake you. God keeps secrets. I've kind of alluded to this already. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my thoughts. My ways, says the Lord, etc., etc. Again, what happens in torture chambers, what happens in prison cells, what happens in communist China or Iran or Turkey or other parts of the world today... Those things, are stay, those, they stay secret. And God is a merciful God. And he knows that people break. He knows that his followers will deny him. Peter denied Jesus three times in John 13. And the very next word Jesus said after John, Peter denied him three times was, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Again, when we just read John 14, 1 through 3, without reading what happened immediately before it, we forget that Jesus was speaking to a disciple who just denied him three times um, in the Sanhedrin there. 
So, so God is a forgiving God and he keeps secret and he wants you to be saved no matter what happens in that police or interrogation or other cell where you happen to be. Weakness is a direct path to power. As Paul says, whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Well, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness as we read elsewhere. So what does this mean? It means if we go into a police cell or interrogated by the police or our employer insists on something, and it may not be mandates for vaccines, it could be Sabbath issues or something like that. Um, if we think we're going to win in our own strength, we're not going to win. You can, none of us can fight the system, as it were. But God can do anything. And so recognizing that I am weak, but God is strong, and the battle is in his hands, I'm going to wait on God to do what he can do, is a better strategy than to go in there and fight in my own strength and fail and feel like I'm a complete spiritual failure. It's better to wait on God and let him demonstrate his strength. Overcoming is better than deliverance. The Apostle Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What you hear a lot from the persecuted Christians of the world today is not, I want to be set free tomorrow, so much as, I want the grace to survive whatever happens today. That I don't want to dishonor God in that prison cell or in that labor camp or in that interrogation room. So what Christians say in many, many parts of the world, pray not that they can be released tomorrow so much as that God will give them the grace to survive and thrive in their faith today. That they will not dishonor Jesus in that camp. There are camps in China. There are camps in um, the Uyghurs, a couple of million Uyghurs now in re-education camps. They're essentially concentration camps. The whole world knows about and does nothing. So never again kind of rings hollow. We know these things are happening, but the world turns a blind eye to it. So God keeps secrets. Weakness is a direct path to power. Overcoming is greater than deliverance, and extreme hurt requires extreme forgiveness. Jesus said this when they were nailing his hands to the cross in Luke 23. That's when he said this. He didn't say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do when the multitude misunderstood him and walked away from him. This is what he said when they were hammering the nails into his hands. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A recognition that in John chapter 16, the end of that verse, the beginning of that chapter, Jesus says that there will come a time when those who will kill you will think that by so doing they're offering an act of worship to God. What that tells you is that even someone who's killing you because you bear the name of Christ and they think they're worshiping Allah or some other God, um, they're acting under a satanic delusion. It's not that they're intrinsically evil, but Satan has deceived them. And Jesus sees beyond their violent acts to the fact that they are a deceived human being and God knows what they would have done had they not been deceived. Therefore, God can still be redemptive towards them. He knows what we would have been had we not made certain life choices in our lives. I can't prove this from Scripture, but I believe that God knows all the possible tra trajectories my life could have taken had I taken certain decisions. He knows if I was abused as a child when I was five, which I wasn't, had I been, he knows that I made certain decisions because of that experience. And he knows what I would have been had I not been abused and had a clean childhood and not been hurt like that. And so God can be gracious to us. He wants to save us. He wants to save us to the uttermost. So uh, extreme hurt requires extreme forgiveness. Um, forgiveness is really the way of the cross when it comes to persecution. Forgiving those who hurt you. And why do I say that? Because Daniel was, in Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. He had many gods. And he came in contact with four monotheist boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then in Daniel chapter 2, you have the story of the statue. 
And at the end of that story, Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, you must worship the god of um, Daniel because he is above all the other gods. So now Nebuchadnezzar is no longer a mon- uh, polytheist, he's a henotheist. I've got to get the terms right. I think it's henotheist because he recognizes there is one god above all the other gods. By the time you get to Daniel 3, you have the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, and he sees one like the Son of God walking with them. By Daniel 4, he has seven years of madness, and he lifts his eyes to the heavens, and he praises God alone. So Nebuchadnezzar goes from a polytheist to a henotheist to a monotheist, and at each stage of that story, he meets imprisoned slave Jewish boys who are faithful in representing God to him. It was their faithful witness to him that ultimately converted Nebuchadnezzar. It was the persecuted slaves who won their tyrannical slave-owning master. And likewise, we overcome, not through, if they hit us in the face, not through hitting back, but through offering love back. Sacrificial love and forgiveness. Because they're attacking us because we bear the name of Christ. So let's do as Christ would have done to them. Which was to turn the other cheek. And prayer is the ultimate fellowship. We're almost at the end of this now. Uh, Again, Hebrews 13, verse 3. Persecuted Christians crave the prayers of the free free church. And again, if you connect with Voice of the Martyrs, if you have a religious liberty department here in this church, I invite whoever you are to connect with VOM, get all those little cards, and have a Sabbath, Sabbath school where you're writing out cards to prisoners of conscience. And pray over them and send them off to Voice of the Martyrs. And know that within a couple of months, those cards will be delivered to prisoners of conscience around the world. And for them, the knowledge that somebody is praying for them, who they may never meet, but somebody is praying for them, is a massive boost in that prison cell. So prayer is the ultimate fellowship. So in conclusion, I want to challenge you today to becoming engaged in your Pacific Union's religious liberty ministry. I think it's one of the most important ministries of our time. Educate yourself on religious liberty issues and trends. Pray for prisoners of conscience and their families. Whether they're Adventist, Catholic, Orthodox, doesn't matter. They bear the name of Christ. Sign up for the NALA, North American Religious Liberty Association, religiousliberty.info, that's run by the NAD. Sign up for the newsletters, Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors. Provide through Voice of the Martyrs practical, financial and other support for prisoners of conscience and their families. We have a great refugee and immigrant ministry family here in our division, uh, run by Terry Saley, um, whose family has spent their entire life working with refugees and immigrants. Uh, check them out. Read the U.S. State Department's Commission on International Religious Freedom Reports and pray. Pray for the persecutor today and pray that you will have grace to represent Jesus faithfully when the persecution hits your door. Jesus described, um, after the Beatitudes, he says, you are the light of the world. So I want to ask you today, is that a description of you today or is it a mere hope for you tomorrow? Is that a description of us as individuals, as families, as a congregation today? Or is it hope for us tomorrow? It's a tough question, yes? I want you to think about that and pray about it. We're not going to go looking for persecution. We're not going to go and punch a policeman on the face and say, I did this because you're going to imprison me for the mark of the beast. No. That would be ludicrous. But we understand that our nation is changing before our eyes very, very rapidly. We're being conditioned for half the nation to half the other hate of the nation. Possibly in churches, yes. We've been conditioned to view fellow Americans as other than us. We've been conditioned to fear 
a large part of our population and to blame them for catastrophe. It's like the dry run for the final mark of the beast. I'm not saying it is, okay, but it's like a dry run. And we need to respond to that by saying, whether we're vaxxed or not, we will still love you as our brother and our sister, and we're going to pray for you, and we're not going to allow this world to divide us. We're going to look out for you, and we're not going to hear negative stuff about you. We're not going to spout negative stuff about you. We are going to respect each other's choices, and we're not going to allow the world to divide us because there are things more important than the current issues before us. Are you the light of the world? I had a description of you today or a hope for you tomorrow. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.